Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The word of the Lord. So we continue our study, Jonah, a tale of two hearts. So far, we've seen Jonah say that he feared the Lord, but actually with his actions, he ran from God. Then as he was plummeting to the bottom of the ocean and uh, reflecting from inside a fish, he began to call on God and to grasp God's grace. Well, today, as we get into the second half of the book, there's a shift. The focus is less on Jonah and more on the Ninevites. So we're going to jump right into it. We're going to begin by looking at God's heart for the nations. Read with me one more time the first few verses in the book or in this chapter. It almost feels like the first chapter all over again. Verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So this chapter begins almost the same as the, same, the first chapter. Chapter 1 opens. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh. So after everything that has transpired, you know, the storm, the sailors, the pitch overboard, sinking to the bottom of the ocean, the big fish, God still has the same purpose in mind for Jonah. Go. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is called a great city four times in this short book. So we want to reflect for a minute on Nineveh. In what way is Nineveh great? Well, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which was some 600 miles to the northeast of Israel in what's modern-day Turkey and Iraq. Uh, it was a powerful empire for a number of centuries. Uh, we read uh, about Assyria and its kings quite a bit in the Old Testament. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria in the year 722 BC. And then after that, Assyria tried to come in and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah during Hezekiah's reign, but God did not allow them to do so. 
eventually, about a century later, Assyria fell to Babylon. Now, when Jonah is sent to Nineveh, um, it was the middle of the 8th century, so around the years 750, 740 B.C. The Assyrian kingdom, with Nineveh as its capital, was known for its violence and its imperialistic, expansionist policies. I'm going to read you some references related to Assyria. Now, all of these come from the book of Nahum, another minor prophet. And Nahum's, the whole prophecy is an oracle against Nineveh, against Assyria. Uh, This came about 100 years after Jonah's time. Okay, so in Nahum chapter 1, verse 1, we read a prophecy concerning Nineveh. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Then in chapter 3, verse 18, these verses are about Assyria's demise. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? So the Assyrians, the Ninevites were cruel and merciless, full of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. They've been called a terrorist state. They burned cities to the ground, tortured, enslaved, killed, and paraded their prisoners of war. Now, when Jonah is told by God to go preach to Nineveh, Assyria had already been a threat to Israel. And only in a matter of two or three decades, uh, they would capture, they would take over God's people, the northern kingdom of Israel. So I ask the question again, in what way is Nineveh great? Because this short book of Jonah says so four times. And here's the answer. They had many people. Nineveh had many people, and God loves people. Here's how Jonah ends. It's a statement by God. This is in chapter 4. We'll look at it again next week. Here's what God says to Jonah at the end of the book. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Okay, now I think that by now we should be feeling the tension with which Jonah confronts us. God shows concern for a people who are idolaters, rapists, terrorists, torturers, a people who would inflict pain on and take freedom away from his own people, Israel. It would be like saying in Europe in the 1940s that God loves Nazi Germany. Or like saying in New York City in 2001 that God loves the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks. So I hope you feel the tension because I know we do. Now don't misunderstand. Read Nahum's prophecy. It came about 100 years later. It'll take you 10 minutes to read it. And in that prophecy, um, the demise of Assyria because they returned to their evil ways is being prophesied. Anything can happen in a hundred years' time in a nation. Who knows where our nation will be a hundred years from now? God will and does bring Assyria before his tribunal. And he makes them pay for their evil and their violence. But during Jonah's time, 
their sins had not yet reached their limit. There was still time for them to turn, which, which is why there's such urgency in this book for Jonah, you know, for God to go after Jonah, after his reluctant prophet. God was after Jonah, as we have seen, not only so that he would uh, stop clinging to idols and begin grasping God's said, his goodness, his graciousness, his faithfulness, but also so that Jonah would go to Nineveh and deliver the message that God gave him. This is why God says to him, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you, which in fact is the reason that Jonah does not want to go. And we'll get more into that next week. But in what sense is Nineveh great? In the same sense that Novi is great and New York City is great and the Democratic Party is great and the Republican Party is great. And U of M is great. Don't feel left out, Spartans. They're full of people. Wicked. Selfish. Twisted. Petty. Judgy. Proud. Hateful. Confused people. And God loves people. God loves people. Now, in 1 Timothy, scriptures teach that the sins of some are obvious reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. Did you know this concept? Let me give you an example. God did not allow his people Israel to go into the land of Canaan against the Canaanites until the Canaanite sins had reached their limit. Some nations and some individuals reach the limit of their sins, of their wrongdoing, faster than others. Now, make no mistake, there are no worse sinners than others. Sometimes we think some people are worse sinners than others. No, there is no such thing. But there are faster sinners. Did you know that? There are faster sinners than other, others. Some people fill up the cup of their immorality, their wrongdoing, their sins faster than others. But no one leaves it empty. No one leaves it empty. And so whether you are a faster sinner or a slower one, God loves you. He loves you, but he also loves the person you can't stand. And that's what's difficult for us. That's what's difficult for us. You know, in verse 3, where it says, Now Nineveh was a very large city, the Hebrew literally says, Now Nineveh was a great city to God. Now, interpreters and translators of Scripture have a hard time with those words. You know, some say that this refers to the size of Nineveh. And yet the point, the whole point in this book has been that Nineveh is important to God. It matters to God for the simple fact that God created heaven and earth and everything in them. And so every nation belongs to God. And God's word to every person and to every nation is the same then and now. It's always the same. What's his message? Turn Turn from your evil ways. Turn to me. Come. That's always his message. Israel was to be a light to the nations, a task at which they failed more than they succeeded. And so Jonah is an example, just one example, of someone who has faith in God, knows much about God, and yet his heart did not yearn to share that faith with people who are far from God, people whom God loves. When Jesus... 
at the end of Matthew's gospel, gives his disciples the great commission. And he says to them, go, go into all nations. He's giving us the same assignment that God gave to Jonah almost 800 years prior. That's the heart that God has for the nations. And so let me ask you, when you see people, you know, who are confused about gender or politically misguided, in your opinion, or consumed with themselves, ignorant, immature, defiant of God, and just outright obnoxious, and there are lots of them, do you see them and consider them great? Great. Great to God. Worthy of the Savior, God's Son, dying to save them. Because if we are honest, like Jonah, we will admit that we're not there. Our heart is not full of hesed, which is what we saw last week. God's heart is full of compassion. God's heart is full of hesed. Compassion towards those who hate him. Those who wrong him. Those who do not love him. Our heart is not full of hesed. Not full of compassion toward those who wrong us. Or do not like us. Or rub us the wrong way. But if we have the spirit of God because we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, we'll beg God. To give us this heart, to change our hearts so that we will go, not just to the people that we like, but the people that God loves in our communities and across the globe. This is God's heart for the nations. Now let's look at God's word and repentance. Let's talk about God's word and repentance. We keep reading in this passage in verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. So he's in Nineveh now. Finally, he's there proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. All of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish okay so look at what was on the other side of Jonah's obedience it took him so long to get there but look at what's on the other side a torrent of repentance the Ninevites believed God and they turned the bloodthirsty violent Ninevites turned now we don't have everything that Jonah said to them there's this summary we're given here but at the very least he said to them 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown now, that word overthrown is the same word that's used in Genesis when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that episode. In Genesis 19, here's what we read. God overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. So this was a complete destruction, a turning over, a raising. They were raised to the ground. And Jonah says to the Ninevites, that's what's coming to you. Perhaps he even invoked the memory of Sodom and Gomorrah. Who knows? And the Ninevites believed. 
They believed God. So Jonah is the messenger. Jonah is the one delivering the word to them. But they take it. They receive it as God's word. We know they believed it. How? Because they took action. They did something. They moved. It says that a fast, a fast was proclaimed. And from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was the clothing of humiliation, the garments of contrition and grief. You took off your expensive clothing, you put on sackcloth, and you began mourning. Now, the closest thing to sackcloth, I think, that we have in our culture is those gowns they give you when you go to the hospital. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, you arrive at the ER writhing in pain. I mean, it took, it took a lot of pain for you to decide to just go to the hospital. But before they help you or give you any meds, they humble you even more. I mean, you're already feeling disoriented when you're there. But they're like, take off your clothes and put on this threadbare drafty sheet. You won't be able to snap the buttons or cover your backside, but we won't see you until you humble yourself. Put it on. I mean, it's like I realized when I was in there, I realized this is why people, all those people in the ER are crying. <laughs> because they have to wear these silly gowns. I mean, think about it. It's not rocket science. People on the street wearing normal clothes, they're not crying. In the ER, wearing the gowns, crying. I mean, it's, it's humiliating. I mean, that's the purpose of this gown. The Ninevites, all of them, from the greatest to the least of them, humble themselves, and they put on sackcloth, and they fasted. They didn't eat anything, which is another thing about the hospital. They don't feed you. You can't eat when you're in the hospital. I was in there for like two days. I couldn't eat anything. They would come into my room and ask me, how do you feel? I say, hungry. That's how I feel. My pain is like at three. My hunger is at 10. They wouldn't feed me. For, I, could, I could only have uh, clear liquids, which what good does that do? And then after a certain time in the day, I would only be able to eat ice chips. Ice chips. My youngest daughter came in and realized that that's all they were giving me, that only, all I could eat was ice chips. She looked into that little styrofoam cup that had the ice chips, and she said, such a sad snack. <laughs> Sad indeed, sad indeed. But that's what fasting is. When you fast, when you don't eat, you get weak. You get really, really weak, really fast. I think that's why it's called a fast. I don't know. Because really fast, really, I don't know if a faster or better way for us to be taken off our usual course of life. I mean, think about this. We're going 100 miles an hour, we got our agenda, we got what's important to us, we got our own sins that we've clung to, all of these things, and then you fast. You say, you know what, I'm going to go without food, and it slows you down. It just begins to do that, to slow us down, and we begin to reflect on what's happening with our lives. When you put distance between yourself and food... What you're saying is, I'm about to become very weak. And in that weakness, I'm making room for God to address me, to summon me. Do you fast? 
do you allow God to summon you? Not just like, yeah, God and I are tight. No, 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 no. Do you allow the, 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 the king of the universe, the creator of the universe, to summon you by name, to address you? Fasting is one of the greatest gifts he's given us for us to be able to begin listening to him. And so the Ninevites humbled themselves. We saw last week Jonah humbled himself, right? He was humbled. Now we see the Ninevites are humbling themselves through putting on sackcloth and fasting, all because of what? The word of God came to them with power. Look at verse 6. When Jonah's warning, that's the word of God, reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. So the power of God's word conquers the power of the king of Nineveh. That journey toward that humility is shown in that verse by a series of actions of humiliation. First, he rises from his throne. So he leaves his seat of power. Then he takes off his robe. So he, he, he dispossesses himself of his royal garb. Then he puts on sackcloth, the clothing of contrition, of brokenness. And then he sits in the dust, in the ashes, and he begins mourning. He begins mourning. Now contrast this with what we find in Isaiah about the king of Assyria. Here's what God says in Isaiah. I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done this. And by my wisdom, because I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of nations. I plunder their treasures like a mighty one. I subdued their kings. Do you see all the I in this passage, I, I, my, my, my wisdom, my great power. Listen, God brings down those who exalt themselves. It may take longer than we would like him to do it, but he always does it. We need to pray for our governing officials in our nation, but also around the world. Their turning to God will not bring about the kingdom of God. We know this, but scripture commands us to pray for them and we want them to rule with justice, with wisdom and with godly morality. But the bigger point here is what Jeremiah says in chapter 23. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock to pieces. God's word is like a fire. It burns through the dross of our pride and unbelief, our, our doubt and confusion, our anger and hurt. God's power, word is so, so, so powerful. Then we read in verse 7, this is the proclamation he, the king, issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink but the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Even the animals join in this act of contrition. Now, it may seem strange to us for the animals to join in this, but think about this. If God had overthrown Nineveh, both people and animals alike, would perish. 
It was a Persian custom for animals to join in acts of contrition. I mean, if a horse can be dressed up for a parade, it can certainly be dressed down for a national act of contrition. But the point is that great and least king, subject, person, or animal, all of them are bowing. They're bowing before God's word. And then in verse 8, we read, let everyone call urgently on God. Let everyone call urgently on God. So here, that word translated everyone is the word ish, which means man. So now, the attention is not on the animals and the people, but just on the people. Because it says, let them turn from their evil ways and their violence. Only the people are guilty of God, of that. Animals have not sinned. Isn't that amazing? It's just the people. The people are guilty. They must turn. They must call urgently on God. They must turn from their violence and their evil ways. And by the way, this is what we're going to be doing later tonight, right here in this room at 6 p.m. We're going to be calling urgently on God at our all-church prayer. And I hope that you have been planning on coming. I hope to see all of you here tonight because we have many reasons to call urgently on God. If you have uh, concern for yourself, for your family, for your nation, if anything makes you anxious about the state of our world, don't be anxious. But let's pray. Let's pray together. Let's call urgently on God as they were encouraged to do here. And then it says that they must turn. That word turn becomes a key word in the last three verses of this passage. The thought is that if Nineveh, as Nineveh turns from their evil ways, from their violence, God will turn from bringing about the disaster that he had threatened. Now, why would God threaten disaster? We need to pause and reflect on this for a few moments because today it's not evident to us at all what gives God the right to threaten destruction of anything. Now, we know that our actions have natural consequences. Our actions have natural consequences. Everyone knows this. If you dig a hole, you might fall into it. If you have poor eating habits, you will likely develop all kinds of illnesses. But the same applies to morality. If someone is a cheater, they're going to be cheated on. Now, secular people and people from other religions uh, employ the, the concept of karma, right, to describe the relationship, the correspondence between our actions and the consequences that come to us. All kinds of books and movies tease out this concept, right? The, the thinking is that the universe balances everything out, doling out rewards and punishments for our good or bad deeds. It's an impersonal system, but it's grappling to believe in justice, right? How, how do we know there's justice in the world? Well, karma. Now, biblically speaking, actions have consequences. Our actions have consequences, but it's a personal system. It's because there's a God. There's a creator God, and that's how he designed the world, with consequences for our actions, and everyone is accountable to him. But the correspondence between our actions and our consequences, it's not one-to-one -one if you only look at a slice in time. If you only look at a slice in time, 
there are good things that happen to bad people and bad things that happen to good people. And the word good there is relative. It's a relative term because we know that Jesus said that only God is good. But if you only see a slice in time, this is where people all often get tripped up because they're like, well, where's the justice in this world? Look at those people, how well they're doing, and they're horrible. Look how corrupt these people are, and look how rich they are, how great life goes for them. Yeah, that's because we're only looking at a slice in time. If instead of just looking at a slice in time, we look at the totality of time and the totality of a person's life, God brings everyone before his tribunal, before his throne, to give an account for what they have done, and he gives to everyone according to how and what they have done. In other words, there's a day of reckoning coming for everyone. And the bad news is that no one has a clean record. No one does. And so in the case of Nineveh, that day of reckoning had arrived. God said, your record, Nineveh, is horrendous. But if... If you turn from your evil ways, I will turn from my fierce anger and not destroy you. And so the Ninevites turned and God did not destroy them. God did not have to overthrow them physically because his word overthrew them in spirit. God did not have to crush them because his word did the crushing. And so we read in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So I want to leave you with three thoughts. First, repentance means turning. Repentance means turning. Every time we hear God's word, we should turn we should change. The Ninevites heard God's word, heard, uh, received his warning, and they changed. I mean, look at what happened. It's incredible the kind of change that took place. Now, all change is incremental. All change is incremental. Change is very much like fruit. Fruit does not grow overnight. No, it grows in steps, hundreds of them, thousands of steps, actually. And then finally, you have this shiny fruit ready to be plucked and eaten. All change is incremental, but every time that we hear God's word, it should adjust us. It should adjust something in us, and nagging doubt should be replaced with solid truth, where you're not just spinning and spinning and spinning forever. You're like, no, I know that this is true. Bitterness gives way to forgiveness. We don't hold on to grudges. No, we, we release them by the power of God. A lustful passion ceases to entice us. It just becomes gross. It's like, ugh, I can't believe that I once liked that. We make more generous decisions. We speak less because we consider others more important. Or we speak more because we consider others more important. We're more full of joy, more full of peace. Our, our, our trust grows, Right? On and on, God's word should always adjust us. That's what repentance is. It's not a bad word. But if we hear the word of God and nothing changes in us, then we haven't believed it. So whether it's in our thinking or feeling or willing or doing, we know we've believed God's living and active word. 
because it is crushing our pride and growing our trust in our Father in heaven. Repentance means turning. Also, people can only believe the gospel when we deliver it. People can only believe the gospel when we deliver it. I mean, look at what those eight words out of Jonah's mouth produced. We know he said more, but those eight words here, five in Hebrew, that's all he gave them, the scoundrel in Hebrew, five words. They stand there as a contrast to the 129 words that we read following that. From the decrees of the king and the actions of the king, humbling himself and the people and the animals. I mean, down everyone from the greatest to the least, humbling themselves before God. Look at what happened. That's the power of God's word. It's like a fire. It's like a hammer that breaks the rock to pieces. And I know that when we look around our culture, we see a lot of rock. Oh, yes, I know we see a lot of rock. We see rock everywhere. In business, in education, in the arts, in politics, in technology, in the media. We see rock everywhere and we think there's no way they're turning to God. They're hard as a rock. And so what we do is we get on our boats, headed for Tarshish, take a nap. Until the next storm comes along and we get distracted with that. And God's word never gets to Nineveh. Church, people can only believe the gospel when we deliver it. Do you believe this? Do you know this to be true? How did the gospel come to you? How did it come to me? People delivered it to me. It's the only way that people can believe the gospel. It's none of our business to worry about the rock It's none of our business because we're not the hammer. God's word does the crushing. It's between God and those he has made. He is the hammer. They are the rock. He is the hammer. He does the breaking. We just deliver it. It's all we do. We just deliver it. So what's your Nineveh? Who's your Nineveh? And are you going? Are you going? Is the Lord putting someone on your heart, even right now, for you to go to and bring them God's word? People can only believe the gospel when we deliver it. And finally, Jesus faced destruction so that we could be spared. Jesus faced destruction so that we could be spared. In the gospel of Matthew, at one point, Jesus It's in chapter 12. Jesus is talking to a crowd of people who are not moved by his words. They're not believing him. In fact, they asked for a sign of his power. But here's what Jesus says to them. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying the people of Jonah's day were wicked. The people of Jesus' day were wicked. He calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. God sent Jonah to the Ninevites. God sent Jesus to the people of his day. The people of Jonah's day repented at the preaching of Jonah. And we saw how little he taught them. 
People of Jesus' day were taught by him, and we know how completely and excellently Jesus taught them, and with what heart he loved them, and yet they did not repent. And so, on judgment day, says Jesus, the people of Nineveh will rise and condemn you, he says. They're going to say to you, you had so much light, and you refused to see. You had so much truth, and you refused to listen. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish. Jesus spent three days in the heart of the earth, dead, bearing the wrath of God. The condemnation that should have come to us came on him. And so the bad news for us is that no one has a clean record. The day of reckoning will come and everyone stands condemned. And everyone will give an account to God. And God will give to everyone according to what they have done. Do not come for yourself by saying, well, there are worse sinners than me. I'm doing pretty good. Do not come for yourself with that. That's not true. There are not worse sinners. There are faster sinners. But no one leaves their cup empty. All of us. All of us have an unclean record. If you have an ounce of humility in you, you know. You know that you're cup is not clean. You know that you are filling it up with your wrongdoing, with your sinfulness. That's the bad news. None of us has a clean record. The good news, Jesus had a clean record, and he went to the cross for us. Jesus was completely pure, innocent in every way, in all his thinking, feeling, doing, being. Completely clean. And he went to the cross for us. He was crushed by the wrath of God. That should have come on us. So that we could receive his clean record. Do you hear this? This is incredible. This is that sweet exchange that happens at the cross. Jesus receives our unclean record. We receive his clean record. He faced the wrath of God so that we could receive God's embrace, God's love, God's fellowship forever. Have you turned to him? Have you turned to him? If not, today you can. Have you run to Jesus for refuge? You know that you have turned to him in faith, in trust when your heart for the Ninevites in your life resembles the merciful, the merciful heart of our God. And we are going. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We give you thanks for this word in Jonah. We give you thanks, Lord, for your word that is like a fire, like a hammer that crushes breaks the rock to pieces. Lord, thank you for breaking the rock of our hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us live in touch with our own sinfulness so that we would praise you and celebrate the fact that you have broken through that sinfulness and given us eyes to see the Savior and to treasure him, to love him. Father, we pray We pray for those who are far from you, those who are confused about gender, about their identity, about life, confused about all kinds of things, angry perhaps, 
hateful. Lord, you love them. You want your word to reach them. We want the gospel of Jesus Christ to reach them. And so we pray, Lord, for your salvation of them. We love you, O oh God. We trust you. You are our God and King. We thank you for your heart of Hesed for all the nations, for every tribe, people, nation, and tongue. Help us go to them. Help us go to them right here in our neighborhoods. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.